Would you please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And then you can also open in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And if you can, I'll, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Second Timothy chapter 3, starting verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You may be seated. Oh Lord, we truly ask you to help us. Your word is alive, is living, And we need a living word to take hold of us. We pray that your Holy Spirit be working in us. Help us. Help me to be faithful. Help the congregation to be faithful, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How many of you have read the Pilgrim's Progress here? Okay, for those who have not read Pilgrim's Progress, you better do that. It's embarrassing that you read Facebook, <laughs> posts, Instagram, but you have not read the Pilgrim's Progress. Such a classic. I highly encourage you. And those who read when you were young and you raised your hand when you were five years old, you better be reading that book. It's so good. It's so good. The gospel is there. In Pilgrim's Progress, for those who read, and some of you who don't like reading, watch the movie. I know how some of you are. You went to the movie. You remember that as Christian is in his pilgrimage to the celestial city, they come to a town called Vanity. And in Vanity, that town, there is a place called Vanity Fair. And the Lord of Vanity Fair is Beelzebub. And you remember what they sell in Vanity Fair. Lands, money, title, prestige. All that the flesh desires. It's all there. All the promises of happiness without God and without His Word. 
And as soon as Christian and faithful arrive in Vanity Fair, do you remember what takes place? In the words of John Bunyan, he says, As they entered into the fair, all the people in the fair were moved. And the town itself, as it were, in a hubbub about them. A hubbub. Sort of chaos erupted as Christian and faithful walk into Vanity Fair. And why? Bunyan gave us three reasons. The clothes that they were wearing. Christian and faithful were wearing different clothes from all the people in Vanity Fair. Not only the clothes, but the way that they spoke was different. And third, they were not buying anything in Vanity Fair. Bunny writes, if the people from Vanity Fair called upon them to buy, Christian and faithful would put their fingers in their ears and cry, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and look upwards. They start getting irritated with Christian and faithful because they're not buying anything and creating a hubbub in that place. So they ask them, What will you buy? What will you buy? And remember their answer? We buy the truth. We buy the truth. Borrowing from Proverbs. Meaning, we are going to invest all that we have, our lives, in the truth of God. After this answer, the people of Vanity Fair, they rail, they get angry. And what they do is they beat, they cage Christian and faithful, they falsely accuse them, they tried, and eventually they murdered faithful. And there is a lesson for us. As Christians, as we are walking towards, as we are journeying to the celestial city, all around us is Vanity Fair. All around us is Vanity Fair. Trying to sell us happiness without God. Trying to sell us a life without God's Word, without the truth. And just like Christian and faithful, we have a duty to close our ears, turn our eyes to the Lord and shout, we buy the truth. We buy the truth. We are not investing our lives in this. The truth. The truth sets us free. The truth sanctifies us. The truth comforts us. The truth changes us. The truth carries us to heaven. The truth conforms us to Christ. The truth gives us reality. The truth gives us light and hope. Therefore, we buy the truth. We ought to be willing in the case of faithful, to die for the truth. And I pray that as we are studying God's Word these next Sundays, that our hearts will enlarge and our love for the truth will grow and cause us to 
just like Christian and faithful, walk through Vanity Fair with our eyes and our feet grounded upon the truth of God. Amen? So as we continue our study, I want to finish what we started last Lord's Day. And we, I explained the purpose of this next series, the priority of understanding the Bible as a whole. And then we started looking at the premises or the presuppositions behind the study of God's Word. That's what everybody carries. Nobody comes to the Bible in a state of neutrality. We all come to the Bible with presuppositions. Amen? Our premises. So I'm just being clear with the premises that we hold in this church for the study of God's Word. So last Lord's Day we saw that the Bible is inspired. Today you're going to be looking at the Bible is inerrant. Then you're going to be looking at the Bible's inherent authority. And then the Bible and illumination today. So just to review really quickly. We saw last Lord's Day as the foundation for studying the Scriptures is that the Bible is inspired by God. Peter says, 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation or fabrication or creation, I think it's better. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or Second Timothy that we read, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Theopneustos. And that's what we saw last Lord's Day. What we have in our hands is a faithful, reliable translation of God's inspired Word. coming from His own mouth to us. So we saw that last Lord's Day. We saw also the importance of seeing the Bible as fully inspired and yet fully written by man. The theanthropic, God and man aspect of the Scriptures. And that's what brings the diversity and the unity of the Bible together. So, moving on, we spent a lot of time last Lord's Day on the inspiration. Now I move to the inerrancy. The Bible, because it's inspired, is inerrant. The word inerrant comes from the Latin. You have the I there, and, and as a prefix, works as a, a, a negative. And no errors. Not erring. That's what the, the concept behind inerrancy so we say that by inerrant, we mean that all that the Bible in its original manuscripts, all that the Bible in its original manuscripts declare is true. Or, as one scholar says, Paul Fenberg, he says, when all facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted, that's very important, will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, life sciences. All subjects that the Bible cover, chronology, geography, science, theology, it's all true. And Christians held this view, Christians, most Christians, I would say, the great majority of Christians held this view until the 17th century. 
In the 17th century, you have the illumination. The critical ideas. People being enlightened by knowledge. And suddenly, they think that they have the authority to put God on the dock and judge God by their own understanding and knowledge. So with the enlightenment comes a lot of perversion of the view of the scriptures. So then you have Darwin and the idea of evolution. And then people start believing, yeah, the Bible is inerrant. The Bible is without error when it comes to uh, religious subjects. So when it comes to talk about salvation and, and, and religion, yes, then we, we, we can trust the Bible with that. But when it comes to science, we've got to understand geography, that those people who are writing the Bible, they're ignorant. As if God can speak the truth about salvation matters, and then speak lies about history and geography when it comes to these subject matters. I came across one scholar who is a liberal scholar and who believes that the Bible is not inspired or inerrant. He says, God uses the Bible, flaws and all, to inspire believers to attain a deeper relationship with their Creator. Meaning, the Bible is inspiring for people to achieve a better relationship with their God. But no, the Bible is not inspired. Full of, full of flaws and mistakes, they would say. And the doctrine of inerrancy walks hand in hand with the doctrine of infallibility. Infallibility. And sometimes people use as synonyms, but infallible means that's incapable. It's impossible for the Bible to have errors. So it's one thing to say that there are no errors, and then infallible means, no, 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 it's impossible for the Scriptures to have error. And then we all agree with this, because as Bruce Waltke notes, he says, the biblical text is the product of inspiration by the God of Israel, who does not lie or mislead. The character of God assures us that what's written is trustworthy. Moreover, coming ultimately from the mouth of God, its teachings are not up for grabs. They must be kept out of faith in the God who inspired them. I like that. The character of, of, of God assures us that what's written is trustworthy. And that leads to the aspect of God's nature and God's word. So theology is the doctrine of God, the study of God. Bibliology is the study of the Bible. And they are inseparable. Because you look at the character of God, and we have a God who is holy, who does not lie, who does not commit mistakes. Therefore, we must believe that His Word matches His character. Amen? Since all Scripture is breathed out by the only true and faithful God, so, for example, Exodus 34, 6, The Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, is low to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, truthfulness. Or Psalm, 
Psalm 31, 5. You have redeemed me, O Lord, my faithful God. Or we see in John, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and what? Full of grace and truth. And truth. So that's His character. And now we're going to believe that He speaks lies. He makes mistakes. So inerrancy is the corollary of inspiration. The truthfulness of the text reflects the truthfulness of the divine author. John Frame writes, Error comes from deceit, telling lies, or from ignorance, making mistakes. But God never tells lies, and He never makes mistakes. Amen? So that's very important. The, the, we connect the Bible to the character of God. That's why inspiration is the foundation. It's coming from a God who does not lie, who does not make mistakes, and will not deceive His people. But also it's important to think about, as we are talking about inerrancy, how to apply that. Because some people might say, oh, you believe that there are no errors, everything is true in the Bible. And then they come up with some visions from Zechariah or Daniel. And they say, oh, do you see, do you believe that there is, a, there is an, an animal coming out of the sea with the seven horns and these massive teeth? They say, no, you've got to interpret the Bible correctly. And the message is true. So I like what uh, Kimball and Spellman, they write, they say, Scripture is true in all that it affirms. But Scripture does not exhaustively address all matters in life. Therefore, whatever Scripture addresses, whether it be doctrine, ethics, history, or geography, it, its assertions are true. While not serving as a chemistry textbook, Scripture does provide the grounding and the foundation for every area of life knowing that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forevermore. Therefore, we use all the linguistic and exegetical tools at our disposal, allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture and affirm the total truthfulness of all that Scripture declares. So, for example, in Mark, Mark 1.5. So you go to Mark 1.5 and then it tells us that all the country of Judea and all the country of Jerusalem were going to John the Baptist. And then people say, oh, do you see? You say you believe in the inerrancy and the truthfulness of the Bible. So do you believe that every single individual from Judea and every single individual from Jerusalem came to see John the Baptist? I say, come on. And we want to use the precisionism that we carry in our culture with normal language that people use. So that's why we need to correctly interpret and then understand the meaning and yes, the truthfulness behind the meaning. So once we do the work, we can agree with the psalmist who says in Psalm 119, 140, Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. So, as Christian and faithful, we buy the truth. We have the truth. That's the truth. No lies, not deceiving us, 
with the accounts here. Amen? Next, that leads to the authority of the Scriptures. Inspiration leads to inerrancy, and inerrancy leads to the authority of the Bible. As the source of all truth, we must submit to the Scripture's authority. That's very important. Since it's the source of all truth, we ought to submit ourselves to the Scriptures. I don't know if you ever heard some people with good intention. Sometimes people say, you know, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you ever heard that? The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And there's good intention behind that, but a better one is, the Bible says it, what? That settles it, right? Doesn't matter if we believe or not, it settles it. We don't judge, we are not over the Bible to declare its authority. So we see, and all authority derives from the inspiration. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. The authority of the Bible derives from the author of the Bible. And who is the author? God Himself. So its authority is absolute because God's authority is absolute. And that's important. Since all Scripture is inspired... All Scripture carries authority over us. Remember I mentioned last Lord's Day about the red letter Bibles. And then sometimes people believe that just the red letters have authority over us. So unless it's, not, unless it's in red, you're not going to submit. Oh, okay, that's the red letter here. No, all the Scripture, all the Bible is inspired. Therefore, all the Bible is authoritative when rightly interpreted. We do not master the Bible. Instead, the Bible masters us. Amen? The Bible has all authority over me, you, and the church. The church does not have authority over the Bible. And that's something you're going to see next Lord's Day when you talk about the canon of the Scriptures. How the Christians never believed that we have the authority to choose which, book, which books are inspired it's not the it's not the church like the roman catholics believe that they have the authority to choose the books we always came under the authority of god's word so gentry and wellam they write in god's kingdom through god's covenants the church does not confer authority upon this book because she desires it to be God's Word. Rather, Scripture itself testifies that it's, it is God's authoritative Word, written through the agency of human authors, and that is the product of the sovereign personal God who is there, and from the God who is not silent. As such, Scripture both attests to and bears the marks of its divine origin, and is thus completely authoritative, sufficient, and reliable. So the authority of the Scriptures must be real in our lives, not merely abstract. And we see a lot of people speaking about the authority of the Scriptures, but suddenly you don't see the authority of the Scriptures in their lives. 
Now, it must be clear. Take hold of our affections, our actions. John Calvin said, We owe to these scriptures the same reverence which we owe to God because it has proceeded from Him alone. I don't know if you ever heard people saying, Oh, those people, bibliolaters, idolater of the Bible. I don't know how you can do that. It's God revealing. You're treasuring the scriptures. You're treasuring God Himself. Revealed there. That's where we see God. That's where we know God through the scriptures. That's why we stand when you're reading God's word. Why? Out of reverence. It's God speaking to us. So, as we talk about the authority of the scriptures, let me ask you Has the Bible been authoritative over your life? What are the areas in your life that when the Bible is demanding your submission, you are rebelling and say, No, not here, not here? And trying to give excuses. So you will not submit to God's authoritative word. And we know that we all have areas in our lives that when we are confronted, what do we do the first thing? To call our lawyers. To defend us. To be offended. And we must speak, O oh Lord. Confront me and help me to submit your word. What are the areas of our lives? Gluttony, pornography, hospitality, serving the church, laziness, fear of death, greed. What are the areas in our lives that we are rebelling against the authority of God's word? And say, no, not here, not here, you're not going to take over here. So my prayer is that this church and we as members will always show through our lives that the Bible is our ultimate and primary authority. Amen? That people would come to this church and see that we are servants of the book, slaves of the book. Many churches say that they are. Many churches, they proclaim the sufficiency of the Scriptures, the authority of the Scriptures. But when you go and you see that there is no such thing as the sufficiency of the Scriptures, they're adopting worldly philosophies. They always need something more besides the Bible. So I pray that this church would be, be real in this church, that we are servants of the word chained to the word of God amen and last one the Bible and illumination in light of the fact that the Bible is a book inspired by the Spirit of God it necessitates the work of the Spirit of God to help us understand it we need the Spirit's work of illumination and authentication we need the Holy Spirit to authenticate the Word. It doesn't matter how much apologetics you know. It doesn't matter how much you study under the best apologists. 
It's going to do nothing unless the Holy Spirit comes and changes their heart and cause a real authentication and acceptance of God's Word. The Holy Spirit is the author, revealer, teacher, and interpreter of the Scriptures. So the doctrine of divine inspiration necessitates the doctrine of divine, divine illumination. Amen? I like what Michael Horton writes. He says, The Scriptures are inspired regardless of human response. But in order to receive their teaching, hearts must be illumined by the Spirit who inspired the text. And then Horton, Michael Horton goes on to draw an analogy from Jesus. And he says, Jesus is the hypostatic Word of God. He is who He is regardless of human response. Right? It doesn't matter if so-and-so doesn't believe that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. It doesn't matter if little Johnny there doesn't believe that the, the Word of God is inspired. It is. He says, nevertheless, revelation reaches its goal only when it's recognized as such. And I love that only the Spirit can achieve this recognition. Only the Holy Spirit. By nature, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, that we are children of darkness, spiritually darkened. We cannot see spiritual things. Paul also says, in Romans 8, 7, that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's instruction. Indeed, it cannot. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, our minds will always be hostile to the Word of God. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Or in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, verse 3 and 4, Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God alone is light. His word is light unto our path. Therefore, we need His work to open our eyes, bring illumination. As one scholar says, In some, God is involved in all aspects of this process of communication. God reveals Himself. God inspires the writings. The Holy Spirit empowers a dynamic relationship between the texts inspired by God and His people. So the entire process is a gift of grace from God to nourish the life of the church. So you might say, wow, I need the work of the Holy Spirit to help me to grasp the Scriptures. Amen? And then what some people will do? Just sit back and relax. Just waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So what I want to say is that the work of the Spirit in illumination by no means deny our labor in studying the Scriptures or in being attentive during the preaching, preparing yourself for the preaching, preparing yourself for studying the Scriptures. 
Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.7, he tells Timothy, think over what I say. Think over. Give yourself to study what I'm telling you, Timothy. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You see? Give yourself to the study. Prepare yourself. And the Holy Spirit will help you. We have the duty to labor over the text of the Scripture. But unless the Spirit works in us, all that labor is in vain. And the Holy Spirit will not work in lazy people. So we need to be working to studying, giving ourselves to, to dedication and, and hard work in studying the Scriptures. Joe Bickey and Paul Smalley, they say, the Spirit's work of inward illumination is like the sunshine, for it dawns at conversion and grows brighter and warmer as Christ rises in the esteem in the esteem and affections of the soul. That's beautiful. Look at that. The Spirit's work of inward illumination is like the sunshine, for it dawns at conversion and grows brighter and warmer as Christ rises in the esteem and affections of the soul. But the shining of this light no, no, knows no zenith or, or sunset. Neither is this work of the Spirit a substitute for continuous study of the Word, but rather an encouragement of it and the greatest help in it. Paul exhorted Timothy, Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. We have the duty to consider, to think carefully about what God's Word says. And those who listen to the preaching must take heed how they hear. And that's why the slide before the preaching, do you remember what we have in the slide before the preaching? Pay attention. Take heed how you listen. This passage from Luke. It's a call for all of us. Pay attention. So, I want to finish just looking at Psalm 118. Psalm 118, and I want to invite you to open your Bibles there. Psalm 118, verse 17 through 19. And here we see this glorious work of illumination. Psalm 118 is the longest psalm. And it's a psalm about what? The Word of the Lord. Praising, praising the Word of God. And it carries different words as synonyms for the Word of God, commandments, precepts, instruction, Torah, your Word. So, he says, deal, deal bountifully with your servant. That's beautiful. Have you ever opened your prayer calling yourself a servant? That's his prayer to the Lord. Deal bountifully with your servant. Yes, I'm a son. I have been adopted through Jesus. But I am your slave. And you read Revelation. That's how we're going to be called for all eternity. Slaves of the Lamb. 
And look how he says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may what? have a happy life, enjoy all the riches of this world. No, that I may live and keep your word. Deal bountifully with me so I can be obedient to your word, Lord. And then he knows that to be obedient to his word, he must understand the word. So that leads to verse 18. Open my eyes. Open my eyes. The, the Hebrew word galah means to uncover, to remove a covering, to lay bare. The eyes, you remember, is not just the physical eyes, but it speaks of the spiritual eyes. So, for example, when after Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were open. Spiritual eyes. Understanding that now they are enemies of God. So he says, Lord, I want to live so I can obey your word, but to obey your word, I must understand your word. So please uncover, lay bare my eyes, Lord. Why? That I may behold, that I may gaze, he says. The idea there of beholding, gazing, implies submission. That I may gaze at what? Beautiful, majestic, marvelous things in your Torah. Open my eyes so I may behold, so I may gaze and submit myself to these majestic things that are in your word. One of the one of the meanings of that word wonderful, marvelous, is it could also refer to something beyond man's ability and capability. So sometimes this word in Hebrew can be used as for something beyond beyond man's ability and capability. It's something I cannot do, I need you. I need you to help me. And look at where the treasures are in God's law, the ESV says. I don't like the translation law. Because every time we hear law, we are thinking about traffic laws. We are thinking about some sort of civil laws. Actually, Torah is covenantal instruction. Covenantal instruction. Sometimes this word is used as God's word. For example, in Isaiah 2.3. So he says, uncover, lay bare my eyes so I may gaze upon these marvelous, these beautiful things in your word. Psalm 19, and then you see the beauty and the power of God's word because in Psalm 19, verse 8, the psalmist says that the word of God is enlightening to the eyes. And at the same time, we need the Lord to open our eyes, to enlighten our eyes, to keep beholding His beauty there. And that's something, you think about Psalm 119. We don't know who wrote that, if it was Ezra or Daniel or who, who, who wrote that psalm, but we know that there was a man who knew the Scriptures very well. A man who we would say was a doctor in knowing the Scriptures. And yet, over and over again, he keeps asking the Lord to make him understand. 
So verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. Or 73, your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understand that I, understanding that I may learn your commandments. And it's all in the imperative, showing his desperation and his need. I cannot, I cannot understand, I cannot see beautiful things, majestic things, unless you, Lord, come and do the work of opening my eyes. Isn't that what happens on the road to Emmaus when Jesus is walking with the two disciples? Do you remember? And the Lord, what did, what did the Lord do to those two men? He opened their eyes, their spiritual eyes. And then they say, were not our hearts burning as He was teaching us and helping us to behold His beauty in the Scriptures? Well, let me ask you, do you cry out? Do you cry out to the Lord before you read the Scriptures? Before you come to listen to the preaching? Before you study the Bible? When was the last time that before reading the Bible you said, Lord, open my eyes. Help me to behold beautiful things. And that's the reason why so many, so many think that the Bible is boring. So many people have a hard time growing in, in, in understanding the Scriptures. You know, because you think you can do that on your own. Oh, I can master that on my own. Then you read, you never cry out to the Lord, Open my eyes, Lord! Please! I need to see wonderful things, beautiful things, and I cannot see unless you work in me and through me. Every morning, before I go to my office, before I go to my desk, that's my prayer. I have that right, right under my computer screen. Uncover my eyes so that I may behold majestic, wonderful things that I cannot do on my own in your instruction, Lord. That leads us to think and ask ourselves, what have I been placing before my eyes? What garbage have I been placing before my eyes, before my ears? Filling my eyes with all sorts of filthy things, my ears with nasty things, and they suddenly want to come to the Holy Word of God and see beautiful things? When my life is grounded upon filthy things, my eyes are constantly beholding worthless things on my phone, on my computer. And then suddenly you think you're going to sit down and behold beautiful things in the Word of God. The Spirit of God is not only a past author, but a present teacher, one scholar says. For it's He who opens our eyes and guides us to the truth attested in the Bible. Under the impact of the Spirit, the Word of God becomes sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the mirror, the mirror of our souls like a blade with two sharp edges. It always cuts with one side or the other, 
that is in a saving or judging manner. God's word is also likened to a fire which devours all that stands in its path and to a hammer which breaks the rock in pieces. The Lord chastises and afflicts His people, however, only so that they might return to Him in, re in repentance and faith. He reproves in order to strengthen. He kills in order to make alive. The wrath of God is in the service of His love. His word of judgment prepares the way for His word of grace. So we need, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit working in us. And you think about connecting now because the Bible is derived from the Spirit of God. We need the Holy Spirit to help us understand it. Because we, with the remaining sin, the remaining sin in us, we are prone to mistakes, errors. We need the Holy Spirit to help us and guide us into the truth. How many times you read a text of the Scripture and you thought that you had the right interpretation right there. And upon further thought, you realized that was a really bad interpretation. Right? It was basically heresy. Why? Because we are prone to that. Error. So we need the Holy Spirit to guide us. You see, the remaining sin causes us to be prone to, uh, to rebel against God, to say no. So we need the Holy Spirit to convict us and help us to come under the authority of the Scriptures. And reading the Scriptures, listening to the preaching, sitting under the Word of God should never be a burden, begrudging. should always be the time of the day, the time of the week when you can behold beautiful, majestic, wonderful things. There is nothing, nothing outside these scriptures that can compare to the beauty of God revealed in these scriptures. So when, and that's the difference between true Christianity and false Christianity. True Christianity longs to read, to see under the preaching. Why? Because you can behold beautiful, wonderful, majestic things that you cannot see outside the Scriptures. So, we join our voices with Christian and faithful and we say we buy the truth as we're walking through Vanity Fair and all the temptations for us to live a life of happiness without God's Word. We say no! We buy the truth. As faithful is about to die, Christian speaks to him and he says, Now faithful, play the man. Speak for thy God. Fear not the wicked's malice, nor their rod. Speak boldly, man. The truth is on thy side. Die for it and to life in triumph ride. And that's what Christian sees. God's chariots coming and taking faithful into heaven. Lord, help us. Help us to truly live and die in and for your word. We pray for the work of the Spirit in our lives. 
forgive us for our autonomy, thinking that we can do things on our own, Lord. Forgive us. We can do nothing apart from you. Help us to be mindful every time we, we grab our Bibles that we have the truth with us, the precious truth, and this truth is full of treasures, beautiful, majestic things inside this book. Help us to delight in reading, listening to these Scriptures. And we know that we cannot do that, Lord, on our own effort. The flesh profits absolutely nothing. We pray that this church would be marked by a cultivation of affection in relation with the Holy Spirit. That people would see and feel the power of the Spirit of God. The same Spirit that breathed the, the Word would be breathing life into us as we immerse ourselves in Your Word. Help us to be servants of the book. Thank You for giving us this beautiful book. A book filled with beautiful and majestic things. In a world that's so full of ugly, nasty, filthy things, we have treasure in our hands. In Jesus' name, amen.